Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. One quick announcement before today's show. In addition to my regular clinical practice and making this podcast, I also do some clinical consultation and supervision for psychiatrists and psychiatric NPs. And I do have a couple of openings right now. So if you're interested in supervision consultation, please contact me through my website. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Jeremy Sharp, a psychologist, the director of the Colorado Center for Assessment and Counseling, and host of the podcast, The Testing Psychologist. And Jeremy and I put our heads together to try to better understand and explain EDD, ADHD. This episode is likely of more relevance to clinicians, but I think there's interesting material in here for all you listeners, and I hope you enjoy it. One of the most requested topics for season four from the listeners poll was ADD, ADHD. And uh, a number of therapists and even my, my patients too have said, why don't you do something kind of deep dive on ADD, ADHD? And I immediately thought it has to be with you because I think we bring some interesting uh, Venn diagram elements that you're a neuropsychologist, you're a testing psychologist, you have a podcast called The Testing Psychologist. You know, I regularly send people to you and your practice for testing and obviously I come from psychiatry so we both uh, are deeply interested in work with ADD, ADHD but I think from uh, different perspectives so I have many many things I want to learn from you today. Likewise this will be good. So why don't we just start with how Jeremy how you think as a neuropsychologist how you think about ADD, ADHD even the fact that we can put those acronyms together, you know, um, as if they're one thing. I mean, do you think about these as a syndrome, as a big tent, as um, gobbledygook that some DSM committee sort of lumped together? You know, uh, you know, from your background as a neuropsychologist, how do you approach thinking about this? Yeah, can I say all of the above? I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of history, right? Like, I think with everything, um, both as a field and as a professional myself, I started out thinking of it like, hey, this is a really uh, black and white kind of thing, right? Like this is an easily definable uh, concern that folks have. And, you know, we tried to make it fit in the box. So, you know, just like history-wise with ADHD, we started out, of course, like thinking it was due to bad parenting, like everything. Everything's due to bad parenting. Yeah, everything's due to <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Sorry, Mom. Right, right. Yeah, all my mistakes are you. Mm-hmm. But we moved on from that. And then we moved into this genes cause it kind of model. Um, so like heavy on the genetics. And um, we thought that was the answer. And lately, though, we've kind of moved to this place where it's more like an interaction between genes and the environment, which seems to make the most sense. Heavy gene load, but the environment is now you know much more of a consideration. As far as the diagnostic threshold, though, I definitely see it as a spectrum, which is hard for folks, right? Like we get people coming to the practice and they're like, do I have ADHD or not, right? This is a yes or no thing. But that's a hard question to answer, right? Because it is, I think it is a spectrum. I think of it kind of like um, uh, the way we conceptualize it is a a little bit like blood pressure, you know, where, um, you know, if you're the top number, what is that? Systolic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the top number is 140 or above. That's high blood pressure. 139? Nope. (laughs) You know, (laughs) even though, right, they're very functionally probably similar, we say we have to make a threshold at some point. So we've done the same thing with ADHD where it's a spectrum. I think we all have traits, right? And like aspects and like elements of ADHD. But, you know, for us, we've said it at, okay, you have six symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity and six symptoms of inattention. And that's the threshold we call ADHD. Now, what if you have five? What if you have four? Eh, no luck, you know? So what about using this analogy? Is is the H part of ADHD? Do you think of it as so? If ADD would be, you know, on a spectrum like blood pressure, is the H maybe like your heart rate or your skin conductivity? Like it's a different measure that has its own sort of spectrum or dimensionality, or is it? Or do you, you know, as a neuropsychologist, is ADHD somehow qualitatively different than ADD? Mm. We're trying to answer that question. So I don't know if you've heard much or heard anybody mention this whole idea of sluggish cognitive tempo. Has that ever come up 
in your practice for any reason. I mean, I've had that for sure. <laughs> right. I have a yes. sluggish. Yeah. Yesterday. <laughs> Till about 30 minutes ago. My coffee. Yeah. No, say more about that. Yeah. So there's a, I'm not sure if you call it a movement, but a group of folks certainly who, um, are, are thinking of ADD. So like minus the hyperactivity, uh, we're seeing a lot of folks in that camp who have what's been called a sluggish cognitive tempo. So just like slower to activate, move slower, um, you know, more of that spacey, inattentive, forgetful. They're not hyper, you know, they're not really hyperactive and they're not really impulsive, but we don't know right now. It's still all under this umbrella of ADHD. And then we have the different types, right? So there's mm -hmm. the hyperactive impulsive type, and then there's the inattentive type, and then you could have both, which most people do. And that's called combined type. We don't have enough research at this point to definitively separate ADD from ADHD, but there is some good like physiological research that's coming out that would say that, yeah, there are these groups of kids or adults who have lower physiological activation and maybe they do fit into this whole other category. Mm -hmm. But right now we don't have enough to totally separate. So it's sluggish cognitive tempo. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Is that sort of, um, the initial presentation, almost like going back to the blood pressure thing. Like if you're getting up in the one thirties, one forties, like that's, the early, like that's the most kind of a basal foundational level. And then ADD, ADHD gets more disabling after that. That's a good, yeah. I mean, I think it can, it can be disabling at any point on the spectrum. So maybe that's where the, that metaphor breaks down a bit, or maybe I don't know enough about blood pressure <laughs> to pull it together, but I think it can be equally disabling at any point, right? Like those slow to activate folks, um, can have a really hard time because they can't get started on tasks. They can't like finish things. Once they do get started, um, they're low energy, they're space, you know, they're inattentive. Um, but then impulsivity can be pretty disabling as well. If that's off the charts. So, yeah. I mean, do you see, is ADHD meaningfully different than ADD? I mean, has the H, has the hyperactivity, is that just, you know, a, a different phenotype, a different expression that's not really, you know, prognostically or treatment wise meaningful? Or do you think the H part, the ADHD versus ADD, that that's a meaningful distinction? Mm. I think it is. I think it is, especially, and this is, I'm going off the record in terms of research and just sort of riffing a little bit. But when we think about the negative impact of ADHD, particularly in adults, you know, hyperactivity and especially impulsivity can get you into a lot of trouble, right? So that's where we see more like substance use and like bad driving and accidents and things like that. So I think qualitatively, there's probably a difference when there's higher impulsivity involved. Mm -hmm. How do you think about you know, in, even in the name attention deficits. So I think the way as clinicians or patients or families, people think of this as primarily an attentional problem, a focus problem. But I've often wondered as I move through my career, if there's something more core than that. And, and so two things I want to explore with you. One is, and I think they're related. One is this whole realm of executive functioning. And so why, why don't we start with that? And then I'll move to the next thing. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you as a neuropsychologist think about executive functioning. What is it and how is that tie in with ADD, ADHD? Is executive, are executive, executive functioning problems sort of nested within ADD, ADHD, or is it, you see it more of like a, again, Venn diagram overlap? Yeah. 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 I love that you're asking this question. I think we did a terrible job naming ADHD. Yeah. The whole attention deficit, like you said, puts people into this pretty limited, um, conceptualization, I think of what it is. So I start at the top, I think of a pyramid, right. Or maybe an inverted pyramid, um, where self-regulation is sort of the top level that encompasses everything. And then executive functioning is kind of nested underneath that. And then ADHD is nested underneath executive functioning. Mm. So, and, and define executive functioning. Yeah. So executive functioning is a set of skills or executive functions are a set of skills involved in self-regulation. So these are higher order, um, cognitive and behavioral abilities that, uh, basically like keep us on 
track in our lives. So these are things like impulse control, um, emotional regulation, goal setting, planning, um, prioritization prioritization it seems like with add adhd that seems to be such a core deficit and sometimes i've wondered if that is the core deficit that just this profound inability it's not just it's a focus problem but it's no no ability or little ability to rank what should be done everything seems kind of equally important and urgent or non-urgent yeah, yeah, you're right on. That you are right on. There are a lot of uh, you know major conceptualizations of ADHD where that's the problem. It's like you know an alertness problem, but then an also it's also a maybe you'd say discrimination problem of yeah, what's that? What's actually important here? And mm. everything seems important yeah. or not important. Yeah. So in your inverted uh, pyramid, you know, understanding of this, if you have ADD, ADHD, then you definitely have executive functioning problems or Vice versa, if you have executive functioning problems, then you definitely have meet criteria for ADD. The first one, yes. So all individuals with ADHD will have executive functioning problems. And executive functioning is something that I think of as transdiagnostic, meaning that not, you know, other other diagnoses have executive functioning problems, right? Like Autistic folks have trouble with rigidity and cognitive flexibility. That's an executive functioning thing. Um, anxious folks, you know, have trouble regulating anxious thoughts. That's also an executive function, you know, so that falls under the, the self-regulation component. Or even depression, you're clinically depressed. Right. Are you able to be the CEO of your life and sort of figure out what needs to happen, how it's going to happen, prioritize it, right. know, plan it out? No. So I, I think that's an interesting thought that executive functioning problems sort of underlie so much of what we see psychiatric, psychiatrically, psychologically, mm -hmm. but for ADD, it's core. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think of it. A lot of the symptoms of ADHD map onto the executive functioning skills, so there's a there's a pretty close relationship there. Mm -hmm. And do those with ADD, ADHD, do you see that in the sort of complex dashboard of, of executive functioning skills, abilities, that they very much, like when you're doing testing, is it more that, oh, this young boy has executive functioning problems, or do you see it breaking down into more meaningful subtypes of that? Like, this kid really struggles with this aspect of executive functioning and not this? Yeah, yeah. That's the cool thing about doing comprehensive assessment is that we have measures that can get at some of that and make some of those more uh, fine-tuned distinctions. At least we think they can, right? That's a whole other can of worms of whether testing translates to real life, but we hope it does. Um, so we have some measures, yeah, that'll break it down into dimensions, even just like big dimensions, like hyperactive impulsivity versus inattentive, right? So that's one. Then we can go even, uh, you know, into even more detail and think about, okay, are they having trouble like shifting from task to task? Are they having trouble with emotional regulation? Are they having trouble with behavioral regulation? What about planning? What about organizing your materials and knowing where your phone is every day? Um, what about goal setting and knowing how to get from point A to point B? So yeah, we have measures that can dig into each of those uh, aspects of executive well, that, functioning. That's so interesting. So you just brought up something I had not thought of it this way, but you talk about difficulties shifting sets as being an executive functioning problem absolutely you know you and i had um, emailed about this and th there's i hear my patients other people talking about oh i have a specific kind of add where it's hyper focus ADD, <laughs> which has never made any sense to me it's like having you know um i, I have high blood pressure but i have the low blood pressure type you know <laughs> or i have a clotting disorder but really uh, i clot fine but I wonder if if there is if there are people who have kind of hyper focus, is it that they have one feature of their executive functioning is that they're not able to shift sets? I mean, is that is that what people are talking about, or how do you understand this, or do you think this is not a real thing? No, no, I think it is totally a real thing. Um, and I will say this: like hyper focus in general is a really hard thing to pin down both research-wise, but also uh, physiologically, like we don't have a great idea what's happening when people are hyper-focusing. So it's hard to study it, but um, there are some correlates. I'm sure you've heard of flow, right? Mm. Yeah, so some folks think that, you know, hyper-focus is an aspect of flow or kind of a, a variation of being in flow. But the way that I think of it in the context of ADHD is 
it's just another variation of poor self-regulation, right? So it's not uh, it's not um, regulating your your attention system the right way. Like in this case, it's it's um, um, like driving down the highway and you you know you your gas pedal is stuck. Like it's just a hundred miles per hour on this one straight path and you can't get it unstuck. Um, you know, the opposite of course is those folks who just can't activate and, um, pay attention to anything. They're yeah. kind of bouncing around, but they're all, it's all a, um, a, a variation on just attention regulation, which to me is part and parcel with ADHD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One sort of biochemical model of hyperfocus is I think of people doing methamphetamine. So mm. they're flooded with dopamine. And of course the We'll talk about stimulants in a little bit, but mm. stimulants increase dopamine. And, you know, there, a lot of people deep in methamphetamine will get in this hyper-focused thing, like where they're taking apart machines, you know, or like taking apart a refrigerator or mm -hmm. just obsessively doing something that seems really pointless and, you know, and kind of, and they'll just stay with it. And I imagine that this sort of hyper-focused state, because there's so much dopamine pouring through the brain and dopamine you know, in, in one circuit of the brain, the saliency circuit, that's what tells us, hey, this is important, pay attention. Right, yeah. right. And it's so like a, I guess, a misfiring of that, you know, or like it's it's out of control. It's the wagon, you know, about to run over the cliff. The, whole thing. Mm -hmm. the horse is just stampeding toward the edge. Yeah. testing on someone with ADD, ADHD, what sort of features you know, of this syndrome or this dimensional ADD, ADHD are more hopeful for you in terms of prognosis and treatment? What kind of features are less hopeful or are going to be harder for people to handle, whether with you know, cognitive behavioral strategies or stimulants? That's a wonderful question. I'm trying to think through because I work primarily with kids and I'm thinking about all of the factors involved. I would honestly, if I had to pin it down to one thing, um, I would take it outside of the actual symptoms. And this may not be surprising, but say uh, it's more about the environment mm -hmm. and how the parents react and how they manage and support and accommodate or work with their kiddo. Um, because we know intervention for kids with ADHD actually focuses a lot on the parents, you know, and how parents you know, interact with them and again, support them and so forth. Yeah. Um, gosh, if I'm thinking about specific symptoms though, and honestly, I'd probably go back to, uh, the piece that we were talking about earlier with that hyperactive impulsivity thing. Like if I'm running into adolescents or adults, um, or kids who are super impulsive, that's kind of hard to rein in, you know, that's kind of hard to rein. And then that's where we get into risky behavior, like substance abuse and sexual stuff and running out in parking lots when they're five and that kind of thing. Um, and then adulthood, it yeah. just kind of goes off the rails. And how do you parse out impulsivity? Let, let's just say boys. We're both boys. <laughs> you know, in my mind, the average, say, boy or teenager is pretty impulsive. Sure. Doesn't have a lot of frontal control. Um, whether you have ADD or ADHD or not, how do you think about impulsivity in terms of um, kind of neurodevelopment in, with boys in particular and then more pathologically with ADD, ADHD? Mm. Let's see. Like you said, I think, yeah, totally normal part of development and gets tends to... Uh, get a little bit worse during adolescence, um, which is, that's what we expect. Right. But when you have the overlay of ADHD on top of it, it's just magnified or amplified, um, even more. And, uh, gosh, I mean, as a parent of a boy who's going into adolescence, mm -hmm. uh, who maybe has ADHD, it's kind of hard to tell. Oh, this um, is so interesting. The neuropsychologist's father, hmm, does my kids. It's so interesting. That's a whole other, you know, <laughs> diagnosing my kids. But, yeah. um, 
but yeah, I, it, you know, I am concerned about it, especially with the emotional regulation component and just like layering, you know, this, this extra piece of poor self-regulation on top of adolescence. Yeah. I think we have to be. And what about, yeah, I, I, I like that you brought up impulsivity because again, in my practice, I don't see little kids, but I see a lot of adolescents and impulsivity is what gets kids in trouble. One of the things, right. but the other thing, and, and I'm wondering about oppositionality, mm-hmm. you know, there's this whole wastebasket syndrome of ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, which to me is really just, you're oppositional, but <laughs> does oppositionality, I mean, do you see that as part of the spectrum of ADD, ADHD, or is that, you know, another realm that sometimes comes in and, you know, mingles with ADHD? Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad I like to hear you use the term wastebasket diagnosis that captures my feelings. I think that's most of the DSM. I I think a lot of it's just, it's, I mean, the things are real, but they're just lumped together in ways that kind of make sense, but without any real, you know, nosology or like foundation that really ties it together. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're on the same page here. That's I've done some interviews on my podcast with folks who were developing, I don't know if you'd say an alternative to the DSM, but certainly an alternative way to think about disorders and mental health issues. So, um, there's work being done out there to do it differently, which I'm really excited about. But yeah, what about, so what do you think, how do you think about oppositionality and again, specifically how that might be part of ADD or overlap? Yeah, I, this is just a off the couch guess, but, uh, I would say at least 75% of the kids I diagnose with ADHD could also meet criteria for ODD. Maybe it's a little less, maybe 60. Um, but I almost never give that diagnosis because it doesn't capture anything meaningful for me, right? It's just, it just describes behaviors that we already know are there. Um, it is often a part of it though, because it gets back to that emotional regulation component and anger in particular is, uh, for whatever reason, um, one of the emotions that, you know, pops the highest in kids with ADHD. So, you know, you heard that phrase like big emotions, Mm -hmm. um, that's often anger and, uh, acting out. So it's a, it's kind of a two pronged thing. Like, poor emotional regulation. So when they get upset, they get really upset and, you know, kind of flip out, but then poor behavioral regulation too, and throw in some of the like motor control issues that come along with ADHD. And you've got a kid, you know, completely flipping out, like throwing stuff and, you know, hard to calm down. And, um, that's a real problem for yeah a mm-hmm. lot of kids. And, but it's also part of the deal. Yeah. When, I've often wondered if, you know, what we call ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, is really just, we're talking about temperament. Like if you think of the five inherited components of mm. temperament, ocean, you know, openness to new experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, you know, A of ocean is agreeableness and the opposite of agreeableness is oppositionality. And, you know, those five things seem fairly hard, hardwired is my understanding. I mean, mm-hmm. and so some kids are just born very oppositional and that's just part of their kind of hardwiring but it's interesting that dsm like oh you have oppositional defiant disorder yes versus like mm, your agreeable oppositional dial is turned way more towards o right that's a good way to think of it and i as a little digression just on odd because that's where on the topic (laughs) for me i will only diagnose odd if it seems like there's a real clear deliberate malicious like F you kind of component to the behavior. I'm not getting, you know, I'm not getting all wound up about kids who talk back when they're asked to brush their teeth or, you know, they won't put their clothes away and that sort of thing. But if it, you know, crosses over into this more, I guess you could say antisocial sort of realm. That's when I'll really think about ODD. But yeah, otherwise I think, you know, some kids and this is, so I talk with parents about this a lot. Again, another digression, but uh, you asked earlier about the um, maybe positive aspects or more positive prognostic indicators of ADD. And I talk about this a lot with parents where I say, like, hopefully your kid will use their powers for good instead of evil, you know. And those kids with ADHD who are a little more oppositional, um, impulsive, they can make great 
business owners, you know, they can have great CEOs. ideas. <laughs> they can be CEOs. They can, you know, lead people. They, you know, there's some energy there. There's some friction, which I think is good in certain relationships, right? And that can, that can go the right direction, mm-hmm. but we don't like it in our kids, right? It's mm-hmm. like, what's that phrase? The kid who's hard to raise, but you want to be friends with later. So, yeah. explore more of this whole genes and environment interaction. Hmm. Um, it seems to me that more and more our environment in 2022 America is making all of us a little ADD. Let me just use a personal example. I love to read. And so for many, many years, I've been a reader, but because now I largely listen to podcasts or maybe read on my phone, when I do sit down with a book, I have to go through a whole like training period. It's almost like I haven't run in a year and I know how to run, but it's painful. And it, it it takes me a number of hours before I can focus. Like I sit with a book and hold it in my hand and I'm looking around. I I feel like I have, you know, late onset ADD. And then I realized, no, this is just what, um, what my brain is adapted to. So I'm thinking about, you know, there's obviously a lot of people who have a genetic predisposition for ADD, ADHD, and now they're coming into a world of screens and distraction and, you know, high dopamine video games. And it seems like things are set up to make you uh, distracted, struggle to prioritize, the struggle to be a focused human being, whether you have ADD or not. So I'm wondering what your sense is of that. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those places where it feels like the research doesn't match the anecdotal experience. I mean, it seems like, I mean, there's obviously something going on, right? Like stolen, you know, the book Stolen Focus, there's books, you know, Deep Work, Dopamine Detox, like there's all these books that are talking about it, right? Like it is a problem. It is a problem. And research-wise, it's pretty, yeah, there's a recent meta-analysis in JAMA, you know, Journal of American Medical Association, that said that, Screen time and technology has a weak but significant effect on ADHD symptoms in kids, at least. So not a huge driver, but, you know, it's worth knowing about, which is kind of surprising. Um, So there's that side of things. But then, yeah, as adults, like trying to move through this world and kids, we know that, you know, social media and technology, you know, they're trying to capture our attention. The attention economy is a thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if the research just hasn't like caught up yet, you know, I mean, cause this whole social media thing is just accelerating and we're getting more and more, uh, addicted quote unquote mm-hmm. to our phones. So maybe in five years, it'll be different. Mm-hmm. And so, I think too, since I'm not a researcher, but I'm a clinician, I have so many adults and even some of my longtime adult patients will come in like, Hey, I want to bring up something I haven't talked about. And then it will usually be, I think I have adult ADD. Mm -hmm. And their evidence is, you know, I can't sit down and read. I can't finish things. But upon further exploration, you know, we're, um, so first of all, inevitably, these people have their phones on during their session and phones buzzing. These, you know, when I talk with people about sleep, like, well, they don't have a, a regular bedtime. They are living these completely fragmented, distracted, phone-based lives and they're talking about how it's hard to sit down and complete a project and um and i say you know you you have attentional problems but again my sense is that you know if you looked at say adults you know with attentional problems that add adhd might be the fourth or fifth most common cause that there's sure sure yeah i think so especially gosh over the last i don't know two three maybe five years yeah people come in thinking it's ADHD. And that's just our cue as psychologists to immediately think about, okay, let's rule out these other four things before we really move to ADHD. Um, You bring up a good point. I just want to reinforce that though, that of course we feel like we have ADHD because 
there's so many distractions. There's so many distractions and poor sleep and notifications. I mean, that's one of the first questions I ask is like, are your notifications turned on? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's a pretty good piece of information. Like, I mean, if I was sitting there trying to read or do anything and it was dinging in my face, I mean, how do you avoid that? You can't avoid it. Mm -hmm. So that reminds me, I saw a a law student once who came in and said, yeah, I think I have ADD. So anyway, he'd gone to college, gotten great grades. He was in a prestigious law school. He said, yeah, I'm having trouble focusing on the law school lectures. I'm pretty sure I have ADD. I'm wondering about Adderall. Well, Upon further investigation, he admitted that he's sitting there in class with his laptop. He's um, gambling. He's chatting with different people, uh, <laughs> IMing. And he said sometimes he would you know, have a, a, like a Netflix movie playing. And he's trying to take notes. You know, and he was like straight A student in college, but now he's got ADD and needs Adderall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this, this is the modern era. Yeah. Well said. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's so many distractions and our poor kids, gosh, our poor kids. In medical school, we learned the word pathognomonic. Do you know that word? Oh, like, um, something that specifically like defines a disorder. Yeah. Like, yeah. I love it. Like, so they talk about like the pathognomonic clinical sign or the pathognomonic question. So for certain medical diseases, like there's, if they have this one thing, you know, like the target rash with Lyme's Lyme disease, but I don't know if I learned this or if I just made this up. So I want, I want to get your Let's get knowing it. me. I may Let's have, do it. maybe I made it up. <laughs> My sense is that with ADD, if you had to pick a pathognomonic sign or question, and I actually use this a lot in my clinical practice, it's as a kid where you were a reader. Mm. And, and the reason I, and I want to hear what you think about this, Jeremy, but my sense is that reading requires an incredible amount of focus, of calm, not hyperactivity, of ability to filter out, to stay on task, to decode what you're reading, to remember what you've read, to hold things in working memory. Um, it requires a lot of kind of inhibition of different inputs. Like it, it actually it is an incredible attentional executive functioning challenge. And so my sense has been that if you were a reader as a kid, that you liked reading, you're good at reading, that you basically can't have ADD, ADHD. But that's my hypothesis. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's a great hypothesis. I like that. I like that. I like the way you think of it pathognomonically. So here's the thing. I mean, there are people with ADHD who are great readers, who love to read, and maybe they're hyper-focusing on reading. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that they can really get into. Um, I also think of it from a, um, I guess a neuropsych standpoint and comorbidity stuff where, you know, there's a lot of overlap between ADHD and learning disorders, especially dyslexia. Right. So there might be like genuine concerns with reading. Um, so here's the thing. I want to get on board with that. And you don't have to get on board. <laughs> you, you can disagree. We, we, we can, we can argue about it. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So this is one of those things where it's like, okay, maybe that fits for 75% of people. And there's plenty of ADHD folks who I think can read fine um, and they can really get in the zone with that sort of thing. Um, so, now, so how is that possible? Like, again, when you think, so if you have, is it because that the A, the attentional part of ADD is not actually maybe even the core problem? Because again, if you would ag agree that reading requires a lot of attention and, and you said maybe there, there's a subset of people who are sort of hyper-focusing because they, they have executive functioning difficulties kind of shifting sets but is that are, are those all the readers or or is there something i'm missing like how can you be you know a solid reader and have add so i might get in trouble for saying this because it's gonna uh, probably not be correct from an anatomical or physiological standpoint but i think of it a little bit like how individuals with adhd do fine with video games so this is a super if it's the right book Right, and if that's where they get rewarded and get feel some little dopamine hits, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're into the right book, you can that can feel really, really good. You know, there's a lot of reinforcement there, and they can get kind of lost in it and the characters and the plot and what's happening next. And so I think of it that way. So it's not it's not so far from playing a video game, which you know I think we would all agree, like plenty of people with ADHD are love video games right mm -hmm. so it's similar in my mind like for a certain set of people books are that motivating and activating mm -hmm. that they can just 
get lost. Right. And I wonder too, kind of based on what we were talking a few minutes ago, when we were kids, there weren't that many indoor activities that were dopamine surging, like we, no video games. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a little older than you, but still reading was a main way to get your dopamine surge, mm -hmm. whether it's reading Lord of the Rings or just some other great series of books that was, that was exciting. And I remember when I finished Fellowship of the Ring, I ran three miles at 10 o'clock at night. I think I was 10 years old and I ran three miles to a friend's house to get the second book. Oh, and ran home that's a great that. story. Because uh, I just, I was so surging with dopamine, but I wonder now, maybe part of the problem that we're seeing more people struggle with reading is that it's not, right, right reading can stimulate dopamine, but there's so many other things that maybe stimulate it better for a lot of people. But it's an interesting thought that you say maybe one in four people with ADD still can get you know, enough dopamine, enough reward from the, the right book. Something that's really exciting. Possibly. Yeah. That please don't quote me on that one in four number, but that's just a, yeah, just a ballpark. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. super helpful. I, I love when people challenge what, <laughs> cause I always wonder like in medicine, I'm just fascinated with the idea of what we believe to be true that, you know, five, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to think, how could we believe that? Yeah. How yeah. I think that same. Well, now you've got me thinking too about what is a pathognomonic symptom of ADHD? And that's a really tough question. I'm going to have to think about, I don't know that, I mean, not one is coming to mind right away. What if it could be prioritization? Yeah, potentially. I could get on board with that. Because that's such a core um, cognitive, or a core um, executive functioning thing. And to really prioritize, especially a complex set of potential tasks or activities, you actually need a fair amount of focus to do that. Absolutely. You know, like, okay, what's everything that you might do this weekend or that needs to be done that you want to do that you should do? Yeah. And working through that and trying to come up with some sort of plan around that. Sure, sure. Psychiatrist, I'm often wondering about the best way to diagnose people. Because so there's there's definitely a a practice that's very common in psychiatry where we'll say, hey, we're just going to do an empiric trial. Meaning, you seem like you have ADD, ADHD, at least by history. We're going to give you a stimulant, and if it helps, voila, you probably have it. <laughs> You know, so a couple of problems with this. One is that stimulants help everyone. Right. You know, but right. I think they help people without ADD, ADHD, they help you in terms of they juice up your you know, motivation and energy and mood and you know, make it more likely that you're going to clean out your garage because you just feel kind of fired up to do it. But I wonder how you think about referral for psychological testing for ADD, ADHD, who who should be referred? I mean, should we be sending most of our potential ADD people or just the people that we're confused about or maybe younger kids because it's maybe a heavier decision to put, you know, a nine-year-old on a powerful stimulant? Yeah, how do you think about testing? Such a good question. This is a huge debate in our field. There was, I'm not just making that, there was a, a, a huge back and forth between two major uh, figures in 2019, I think it was about, do we need testing for ADHD? Mm -hmm. And these were neuropsychologists. These were, you know, well, one was, one was a psychiatrist, one was a neuropsychologist. <laughs> um, you could guess who was on which side. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think where we've landed is, do we need a comprehensive assessment for ADHD? Probably not. Probably not. Right. Like I think you can diagnose it now. Should you just do a stimulant trial? Probably not because <laughs> like, like you said, everybody can benefit. But with the testing thing, I think you can get a pretty good handle on quote unquote straightforward ADHD. If there are no complicating factors, no suspected uh, comorbidities or other things going on um, with a good interview, some collateral interviews, a couple checklists, and maybe a, a basic cognitive assessment, you know, like an IQ test. 
Um, I think you can get a pretty good handle on that. It gets trickier in adults because you have to go back to childhood and get some school records and things like that. But uh, if you're just trying to rule in ADHD, you could do it with that, whatever I ticked off, four or five mm-hmm. components. So where it gets to be more complicated is that ADHD has so many comorbidities, right? Like, and it masquerades as other things and other things masquerade as ADHD. So one of the big ones we see in our practice, I'm sure you see this too, is, is this anxiety or is this ADHD? Mm. Or sometimes is this autism or is this ADHD or is it both? Is this a learning disorder? Is it, you know, um, so that's where I think testing can get to be a little bit more helpful because going through a comprehensive process like that, it just affords more time and energy and gives us more data. You know, we can do a personality assessment. We can do a little more cognitive testing to really see like what the brain is up to. And you can do a better job at ruling out the things that might look like ADHD versus just ruling in ADHD. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. Do you think testing can tease out uh, this distinction? Because I think it can be hard to tell whether people have coexisting ADD and anxiety, or alternatively, if their ADD is bad enough that it's making them very anxious. So they're going to school or work and it's so hard to do what they're expected to do that they have a lot of anticipatory anxiety and task anxiety. And so, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it seems really important to determine because if you have, you know, both, if you have pre-existing anxiety and ADD stimulants can be problematic because the number one side effect of stimulants is anxiety. Sure. But then I've had other people come in with terrible anxiety and ADD and stimulant. They'll say, Oh, my anxiety has gone. And I realized, Oh, your anxiety was coming largely or entirely from your ADD. Yeah. I mean, can testing get at the heart of that? It's only the data is only a tool that we can use, um, in conjunction with, you know, everything else that we have. So I wouldn't say that we have any cognitive test necessarily that will say this is anxiety versus ADHD, but we can look at the pattern of data and then put that together with the interview information that we have and the history and the school card, report card, things like that, and try to create a coherent picture. But this gets back to that earlier thing where I said, uh, you know, we still wrestle with what our testing actually does sometimes. And that's a tough one, right? A lot, of, a lot of the time it's only as good as what people tell us and what mm-hmm. other people tell us about that person. So that's the art, I suppose, of yeah. the work that we do. How do you think about substance abuse, substance abuse risks with ADD, ADHD? Because there's been a big ongoing controversy in psychiatry specifically about use of stimulants in kids. And so there's the camp saying, by treat by aggressively treating ADD, ADHD in kids, you give them a ch- better chance to succeed in school and in peer groups, and you actually significantly decrease the risk of later substance abuse and addiction. And then there's the other camp saying that by giving people, you know, Adderall is basically meth; it's short-acting meth. By giving people Adderall and the like, you're actually juicing them; you're setting them up for further substance abuse. Now, I was always in the former camp, but I have a number of patients who are adamant that their later drug problems came from being medicated with stimulants as a kid. I mean, they believe that. And every time I hear that, I think, gosh, how true could that be? Um, Because again, a kid with, uh, with ADD, with impulsivity problems, even with oppositionality problems, with problems sort of looking in the future seems set up for substance abuse. But yeah, is that something that you think much about? in your work or how do you approach that? Yeah. So this is interesting. My dissertation topic was on folks who recreationally use stimulant medication without a prescription. So I was in that world for a number of years, a number of years ago, but so I did think about this a lot. I mean, the research, like you said, I think is pretty clear that properly medicated kids who are accurately diagnosed with ADHD have a lower risk of substance use, substance abuse. Um, same with adults. I think where we run into trouble maybe is if the kiddo was not accurately diagnosed and maybe didn't have ADHD and it was something else going on and then we're throwing stimulants at them, um, then that could be an actual problem. Um, I'm sure, I mean, I know there are cases out there where, uh, where 
kids who are appropriately diagnosed and medicated still have substance abuse issues. But I don't know. I would ask you that question. Like, what is the mechanism then from um, being prescribed stimulant medication to having a substance abuse problem? You know what I mean? Like, what? how, how did they come to believe that so strongly? Mm-hmm. I wonder, this actually relates to what I wanted to talk about next, but this idea that at least in psychiatry, you know, the treatment for ADD, ADHD is stimulants. That's, and so I think for a lot of psychiatrists, like, hey, you're treated, you got your stimulant. Mm. And I think a lot of psychiatrists don't think much about all the other things that could happen. Like in a good neuropsychology report, there's a you know, page or two, like mm-hmm. these are all the other recommendations for this kid. Um, and so I wonder how many of my patients who say that their early stimulant prescriptions set them up for later substance abuse, I wonder how much their docs were treating you know, they only had a hammer mm. and they saw that nail. And so when the kid was having lower grades, I- any kind of problem, maybe they just jacked up the stimulant. Cause I, I do hear people relate some stimulant doses to me that are crazy. I think there's no way you're on that much Adderall. Like, yep, yep. When I was 11. And so part of me thinks, okay, your doctor was insane. But then I wonder like, well, if you just think, well, the treatment for infection is antibiotics, give more antibiotics. If the treatment for ADD, ADHD is just give stimulants, so I want, that's part of it. Um, that makes sense. It's just maybe just overdosing. And then the other thing is some percentage of people who are on stimulants really, really like them. And, you know, so you could be someone with ADD, ADHD and someone who really likes stimulants. And so when you get that early exposure, you think, yeah, this is what I want. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'm sure there are always cases. Yeah. Let's move to talk a little bit about other recommendations. So when you think mm-hmm. about, and I'm particularly interested in the, executive functioning deficits, because it seems like stimulants work pretty well with focus. Again, back to my example of, you know, someone on methamphetamine and spending hours taking apart a refrigerator. You know, if you have enough dopamine surging in your brain, you can focus on the most boring inane task for sure. (laughs) But it seems to me that stimulants don't do as well addressing the executive functioning problems. So when you think about treatment recommendations and you, you tested a kid, let's say, who's got a lot of executive functioning deficits. How do you think, you know, in terms of recommendations, school, environment, parenting, like what else should be happening besides, you know, the methylphenidate script? Yeah, yeah, I love this question. Um, I talk about this with parents a lot on both sides. There are the parents who are like, we can just get medication and it's going to be great. And then there are the parents who are like, we don't want to do medication ever. <laughs> and this conversation fits well for both of those because it's like, there's other stuff. You can do other stuff. So you get this, I'm sure, 100%. Like lifestyle will get you a lot of mileage, right? So sleep, diet, exercise, baseline, that if you change those things or have have all those things dialed in, that's going to move the needle a pretty good bit with ADHD and a lot of other things. So Especially sleep. Especially sleep. I, I don't think all my adult, every adolescent I see essentially has a completely disastrous sleep schedule. That's so bad. Yeah, and if they, even if they don't have ADD, almost all of them have really serious attentional problems because their sleep is so wrecked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, continue. So I start with those, those three, and I'm like, these are free, they're easy, they're convenient. Maybe they're not always easy, but they're convenient at least. They're at home, and let's start there and see where it goes. Um, so all those things are going to help. Exercise, especially, uh, there's good research around exercise and ADHD symptoms. Um, but it has to be, uh, moderate to intense exercise. I mm. found that out recently. Um, yeah. do, have you experienced this, Jeremy? And I don't have ADD, but, um, I find I do my, when I want to think about something difficult, like a difficult patient presentation, or I actually, whenever I think about like an upcoming podcast episode Anytime I want to do some really deep thinking, I go running. Yes. And there's something, and and I know there's good data uh, that kids with ADD do better when they're moving. And that, you know, if, I think if we can get them moving before class, you know, multiple times through the day. But do you have any sense, like, what is that? That uh, there's something about movement, you know, especially moderate to more, more serious movement that really brings you in this sort of cognitive zone and creative zone. And I I don't, I'm always doing my best thinking when I'm running. Yeah. I mean, do you experience that? While you are running or after you're running? Um, 
it's while I'm running, but, but I have to say it's usually, it's not when I'm going out to do like a hard interval workout. It's I'll say, I'm going to go run for 25 minutes and I'm going to think about like how I want to structure the story on the next you know, podcast episode. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, and by the time I come back, boom, it's all, it's all structured. It's, I, it's all there. Mm-hmm. And, but for me to just sit down and think of that, like, I know I do all my best thinking when I'm running. Yeah. So I a hundred percent agree. And I don't know the answer to that question. I should, mm-hmm. but I don't No. Running is just magic. That's the, I'm going to go running and think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. Yeah. with ADD is that your sense too that particularly people that have the H that that movement is actually therapeutic for them and yeah I do agree with that I think there's a lot to that um especially if they can hook it into again that reward system and you know the motivation and the um drive to to exercise I mean that can that kills a lot of birds with one stone Mm -hmm. so I'm a big fan of exercise even my my kids they don't have ADD but before they took the ACT, I said to each of them, you need to run around the building. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> they that was the dumbest thing. I said, no, just run around the building because that will get your brain in a good focusing place. And yeah. Yeah. Helps with anxiety. Yeah. So getting back to this question though, of what else we can do. Um, so diet, sleep, exercise, baseline stuff, but then I'm going to back backtrack just a little bit to your question though. I mean, stimulants we know should help with things like impulse control, sustained attention, maybe some motor coordination, right? So that's great. I mean, those are some of the core executive functioning deficits, but they're, you'll notice, I mean, those are not skills necessarily. Like we're not, it doesn't teach kids how to um, map out an essay or uh, figure out like, how do I get from zero progress on a science project to a hundred percent on a science project? Um, so there's a lot to say about uh, interventions to build those skills. So that might be like educational therapy, which is a close cousin of executive functioning coaching or ADHD coaching, you know, where they're going to um, teach those very specific skills. I think there's, you know, that's, that's a really good thing to pursue for a lot of kids. Um, there's good research around just cognitive behavioral therapy for ADHD, particularly where, you know, we're working with some of those negative thoughts and changing some behaviors and, uh, that can be super helpful too. So I'm always recommending the combination to parents, um, and just make sure to say, Hey, medication is not the only thing here. You've got to do other stuff to, really make a difference. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned impulsivity because right. Stimulants, not always, but often seem to dial that down. Yeah. 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 As we're wrapping up, I wanted to actually come back to a a really basic question that we kind of skipped over, which is, and we talked about how you think about ADD, but I wonder where did it come from? Like, is this actually pathology or is this only pathology because of the way modern society is set up? You know, if, if we were hunter gatherers that it might actually be useful to have kind of a hyperactive, um, non-focusing, super vigilant, you know, person in our tribe who's keeping an eye on stuff, who's not just overly focused on the ladies or on making fire, but is actually, you know, running around and like, Hey, stuff's happening. I, I, you know, cl- some things are clearly a uh, psych- Let me use psychosis, very pathological psycho psychosis causes terrible problems, but is ADD, is it only pathology because of our culture? I love this question. I'm glad you asked this question. And I'm going to answer like I did to an earlier question and say, it's a little bit of both. So we do know, we do know that individuals with ADHD have different brains than folks without ADHD, right? Like we can look at imaging and say, okay, these areas of the brain are different in folks with ADHD. So Um, that gets at one piece of this question of, you know, are we just sort of inventing this for lack of a better word, like due to our culture or whatever. Um, 
And there's a lot of history behind it. So if you go and look back, um, I think it was Hippocrates, maybe, who first mentioned a, sin, a, a set of symptoms that look like ADHD in modern day. But in more modern history, there are some reports, I think, around 1800, and then it really picked up steam around 1900 or 1903 is when the first like physician really started to put some time into it. And then it kind of got off to the races and picked up more steam like in the 60s and 70s and so forth and made it into the diagnostic manual. So this set of symptoms, I think, has been around, or this maybe we'll call it a phenotype, right? Like mm -hmm. there have been folks who present this way for a long, long time and are environment, culture, society makes it worse if you're in an environment that is high attention demand, right? So um, this, uh, and I don't know how, how deep we want to go into all this, but it does sort of dabble into the neurodiversity arena, right? And this idea that, you know, is this actually pathology or is it just a kind of a, um, uh, a natural sort of variation in human um thinking and behaving that is pathologized because of the environment. Like it's a mismatch between person and environment. That's a tough question, right? So I talk with kids and adults about like, if you're in an environment that rewards these traits, you're going to look a lot less ADHD. Or if you're in a classroom of kids who all have ADHD, the ratings on those rating scales are going to be, you know, deflated because everybody looks the same. Right. So so it's kind of both like it's been around for a long time and the environment that you're in definitely makes a difference, at least to me. Yeah. And also I could see, as you said earlier, certain symptoms of the syndrome of ADD are much more problematic in any culture, like the impulsivity. Right. Right. Like that that's never a winning strategy as a social tribal primate. Right. It, yeah, I think you're exactly <laughs> right. It's tough. And people, you know, people ask uh, as well, well, isn't that, isn't this just an American problem? And the research actually shows that the worldwide, like the global prevalence of ADHD is right around 5%, 4 to 5% um, across countries. So that's interesting too. That is super. I, I'm actually surprised at that. I would have thought mm -hmm. it was significantly higher in developed countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's just more disability from it. I wonder, cause you know, a lot of critics of psychiatry will say, Hey, their outcomes for people with schizophrenia are better in poor developing countries than in developed countries, which mm. is actually true. That's which is very, yeah. So quote unquote, well-treated patients with schizophrenia in the U S and Japan and Germany fare poorer than people with schizophrenia in Tanzania or El Salvador. Is that because the standard of functioning is so high in developed yes, countries yeah i think it's the complexity of life it's the sort of clan family structure like mm. so much of the developing world is just normal that you all take care of each other and if you have someone who's troubled or the village kind of keeps an eye out for them and it's just life's a lot simpler i mean it's harder in some ways but you know modern life is incredibly complicated and mm -hmm. and uh so yeah but I wonder too, if there's some of that with ADD that is 5% of people in Tanzania have ADD in here, but it's much more impairing here. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot about, again, just working with kids, how school environment makes a difference. So, uh, I go out and do school observations as part of the evaluation. Right. And do you want to know the, there's one school in Fort Collins that I have literally never been to. Do you want to guess which one it is? <laughs> Um, compass? No, no. Good guess. Waldorf. Really? River song, the Waldorf oh. school. And I wonder if that's because the model, the Waldorf model is a little different, right? Than standard school, right? Like they are doing a lot of running around and singing and creative work and art and they're out in nature and there's not so much emphasis on academic performance and that's really interesting to yeah. me again just anecdotal but yeah that actually I, I had i have a final question which um totally relates to that which is you know if you could be the czar of schools um and you could suggest a change or changes that might be helpful for millions of kids with add adhd anything come to mind Maybe I'll back it up and just say millions of kids, period. Mm. Two things, later start time and way more recess. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 
let kids get their sleep and let them exercise at school a lot more than Mm -hmm. they are. I'll just keep it simple. Yeah. And on that note, I think we should wrap up and think about where we're going to go running next. I love it. (laughs) I love it. This is great, Jeremy. I actually learned a lot and I'm so glad we did this. And uh, thanks for sitting down with me. Absolutely. Yeah. Likewise, this is a lot of fun. Thanks. As always, Chris and I love to get your input, comments, and suggestions, and you can reach us through my website, craigheacockmd.com. You can also support Back From the Abyss by sharing episodes with others, by posting on social media about us, and by writing a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks.